This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Happy New Year to everybody around the world who listens. I love that we have an audience that's all over the place. I love the demographic, the global geopolitical demographic, and all the wise, incredible emails that come in with great dialogue, questions, suggestions, points of view, perspectives. What a gift to sit in the seat. Today, I have a very interesting guest, and we've already been chatting. We're, we're going to go in some cool directions that I didn't plan on, but I don't plan a whole lot anyway. He has written a very good book that I think needed to be written. It was, it's called The New Crusades, Islamophobia, and the Global War on Muslims. It's a deep dive, very, very, very intense, and uh, well worth a read. It's my honor to welcome my new friend to the show, Khaled Bedoun. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We started talking about soccer somehow before we came out because you had just gone back from the World Cup. I thought it was the greatest World Cup I've ever seen, the greatest final. First, I wondered, how did you even, how do you get tickets to the World Cup? How do you go to the World Cup? Just I'm asking because I maybe I'm going to go to the next one. And I know we have a lot of soccer fans around the world. You're laughing. <laughs> maybe I'll go with you. I'll tag along. Yeah, you know, it just kind of happened. I, I I was doing a lot of writing um, on the World Cup, the political dimensions, you know, some of the issues around labor rights, issues around identity, uh, issues around Islamophobia, you know, aligning with the book. And various media outlets asked me to come out um, to Qatar and watch some of the games, you know, get a, get a sense of the vibe in the city and also produce some writing. So uh, it all kind of came together that way. And it is a political thing, especially when we talk about the host country. We were, you know, they were talking about the people that died working on the the place, the human rights, civil rights, social rights. What was your take firsthand being there? Well, you know, you hear a lot and you read a lot before you get there. It was my third time in Qatar, but I can tell you that uh, the country had changed in a very dramatic, transformative fashion um, in preparation for the World Cup. They had just invested so much money, you know, creating infrastructure, buildings. And that was tied, I think, to, uh, to some of the labor concerns. But w- when I got there, you're sort of submerged into just the, you know, the jubilance of the tournament, the World Cup itself, just, you know, the cultural fusion. You're, you're meeting people from all over the world, from Mexico, from Argentina, from France, from Croatia, uh, Japan. Um, so once you get there, the political sort of dimensions in some respects, you know, kind of take a backseat to the sort of, you know, to the cultural submersion that, um, you know, takes place when, once you're, um, actually on site. And then obviously there's the, uh, the additional dimension of being at the matches and watching, um, watching the soccer, the football. We're the only country, I think us in Australia are the only countries that call it soccer. So I grew accustomed to calling it football when I was there. And what you were at the final. In general, and also you were at the semifinals. What what's the vibe like in the stadium? Yeah, you know, uh, so the the final was absolutely insane. I mean, because you know, you know, Argentina took a two zero lead, and then France with Kylian Mbappe storms back, and uh, and then they go to penalty kicks, and then obviously Argentina wins. But I can tell you this, you know, having gone to World Cups before, uh, it always seems to me that the South American fans are by far the most sort of engaged, joyous, electric. They're singing and dancing. Uh, they're, 
they're they're there like three hours before the match, and that was, was definitely the case for the Argentine fans. They were the sort of dominant um, dominant presence in the stadium for the final. Um, and I can I can tell you, like you know, I, I, I'm clearly a spiritual individual. It just kind of like felt like once you got to the stadium that things were working in favor of Argentina winning the World Cup. That was the vibe that I got. And Lionel and Lionel Messi lifting up the trophy, so it came together that way. I don't like when people try to say this one's the greatest, that's the greatest, but he's definitely because how can you go above Pele or who's to say? Like it's the same with the I'm an NBA fanatic, but I would say top five, right? One of the all time greats, undisputably Messi. Yeah, well, you know, well, well, my guy's Diego Maradona. You know, another small, <laughs> another diminutive Argentine. Yep. Um, but yeah, you got, you, you got to say Messi, you know, enters that pantheon of being, you know, top five greatest of all time, especially he, he kind of sealed the deal by winning this world cup. I love that you brought up the spiritual vibe of it too, because I thought when I was watching it, I'm very spiritual too. I thought, oh, this is the best of humanity, 60, 70,000 people coming together on sports, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the singing, the competition, the tears, it's like when I go to see a symphony or a museum, I think, oh, now here's our best. Yeah, it felt, you know, it felt that way. For me, I think it was really moving because, look, this is a tournament taking place in the Middle East. This is obviously a region that has been, you know, stereotyped and tied to war, tied to violence, um, you know, backwardness and so on and so forth. So as, as an Arab American and as a Muslim, going to that part of the world and going there for reasons beyond uh, you know, politics and just going there to watch soccer um, and seeing an Arab country put on a, you know, a stellar uh, event and tournament was a really inspiring thing, um, you know, on, on on a sort of existential level. That That's something that I take away from the World Cup that I think will last with me even more so than the actual, uh, you know, electricity of the final and uh, the cultural experience. What was the pride factor around Morocco? coming for the first time into the semis, a real Cinderella story. What a beautiful team. What did, what were your personal feelings around it? Was there a collective vibe to, you know, sort of the Tourney Cinderella, the underdogs, you know, right there in the semis? Yeah, that, you know, I think that for me was one of the more sort of like sublime threads of the entire tournament. I myself am Egyptian. So like, you know, obviously Egypt plays in the African qualifying uh, end of things. So I, I've always been familiar with the Moroccan team and I always cheer for like the underdog teams, you know, whether it's the African sides or, you know, countries like Japan and South Korea. Um, yeah. So, you know, in Morocco played in a very difficult group, but when they beat Belgium two to zero, you know, and Belgium was obviously one of these European powers. I thought that there was something to this team. They had a lot of, you know, top class, world class players like Ashraf Hakimi, um, but the team just, you know, kind of came together. And I think that, you know, being there, I think that they were kind of galvanized by being in a Muslim majority country. Um, it kind of felt like all of their games were home games. I went to many of their games and their fans, just like the Argentines are raucous. And, you know, they they get it. They go they go after it during the match. So it was it was such a beautiful story to see a, um, you know, uh, the Moroccan team make history as the first African team to reach the semifinal. And then a, a, a team that was so unabashedly and unapologetically Muslim, you saw them praying, you know, dancing with their mothers and really celebrating who they were in a way that was, you know, unconstrained. 
um, in Qatar. And yeah, I mean, I wrote a couple of pieces um, for CNN and ESPN on the Moroccan team. And um, yeah, it was such a, such a beautiful story. What does it feel like for you to go into a country that is a Muslim country? Do you relax? Do you breathe a little deeper? Do you feel safer? Do you do some of the inhibitions that you would obviously have in America based on our behavior? Do they drop away subconsciously or consciously? You know, it's 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 complicated, right? Because I'm <laughs> because I'm because I, because I'm Muslim American, right? So in, in, in some respects, like the I guess the spiritual side of me, um, yeah, it is a bit more comfortable because you don't have to do the explaining, right? You don't have to explain you know, why it is you're darting away for five minutes to go pray or, you know, what the correct pronunciation of your name is. But then the American side of you is also kind of like, okay, there, there are some things here that are peculiar. Um, so, you know, I guess it kind of speaks to the fact that by virtue of being, you know, Muslim American, that you're not fully, I guess, in place in Qatar, not fully in place in the States. Um, but I think it also like, you know, it also kind of shapes an agility to be able to adapt in whatever context you're in. Have you ever been to Mecca personally and gone there and prayed? Yeah. Yeah. I went there for what's called Umrah, which is like a um, kind of like a spiritual pilgrimage before the big one. What was that like? I've seen photos and I've talked to other people. It seems like a, a powerful life event if you can get there. Definitely powerful on many levels. I can tell you that. Um, for me, the most moving thing was just meeting Muslims from all over the world. I recall I was I was young when I, when I went, it was I was 24 or 25. I was fresh out of law school. Um, you know, young kid just moved from California to the East Coast. And I was on a work trip in the region. I was a practicing lawyer at the time. And I went with um, some older brothers. But when I was there, you know, I met um, I met brothers from Dagestan, Indonesia, um, one of my good friends was a Muslim convert that I met there from Mexico. So, you know, I grew up in Detroit, which is very black, Middle Eastern and white. It's a very segregated. City. So even even me as a young person, I only understood Islam from a very racially narrow perspective. But I think being there, you realize just how universal and diverse uh, the Muslim population is globally. I remember reading the writings of Malcolm X on this, too. He had a quite the similar experience. He didn't realize how diverse it was. Yeah, not at all. And Malcolm X, I think, had the the experience of coming out of the Nation of Islam, which you know is um, overwhelmingly overwhelmingly a black religious movement. And when he went there, I think that it really sort of dissolved, you know, many of the racial constrictions he had before. And I think that's one of the one of the more beautiful sort of overlooked things about the religion of Islam is that it's a religion that is deeply anti-racist and one that sort of um, sets aside religious and ethnic divides um, in place for spiritual affinity. Can anyone go? Could I go as just a pilgrim to Mecca? I think you can. I think you have to get a visa from the Saudi government, which isn't the easiest to get. It it might be restricted to Muslims. I'm not exactly sure, to be honest with you. Um, But but don't quote me on that. (laughs) And and I'll and I'll tell you, I think on a political level, I mean, I, I have critiques of the Saudi government um, and many governments in the region as well, which makes it a nuanced sort of complicated conversation. when We talk about Muslim identity, Islamophobia, and then uh, the political dimensions of how these governments conduct themselves. 
Yeah, well said. And also, I've probably said critical things about Saudi Arabians. I'd hate to go to the embassy to get any kind of paperwork. Might end up, you know, carted away, you know, in pieces like the, our brother journalist. Yeah, Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, what a sad story. Growing up, were you spiritual? Was your family religious? Did you practice a lot? I did. You know, I grew up in a very, um, I grew up in a single parent household. My parents divorced when I was a teenager. Um, my dad, ironically enough, what he was, he wasn't very religious. He was more of a secular man. My mom was um, always very deeply religious. She's an Egyptian woman from the outskirts of Cairo and came from a religious family. And um, I was always sort of embedded in a very, um, you know, culturally Egyptian Muslim household, but not one that was very rigid, if that made any sense. My mother didn't sort of like instruct me or instruct us to have to pray. She didn't tell, tell us, to, you know, how to conduct our lives, but she sort of like curated a culture within the house where certain things were um, restricted, right? So for instance, you know, alcohol and partying, um, she sort of monitored the kind of films and music uh, we consumed. Um, she was always mindful. She was working all the time. My mother, you know, had to work because of uh, financial circumstance, but she always tried her best to like monitor you know, who it was, uh, you know, we were spending time with. And even though, you know, when I got to college, um, you know, I took a deep dive into, you know, existential philosophy, different perspectives, and actually moved away from um, religion for some time. But those those found foundational norms that my mom sort of embedded in the household early on always stayed with me, even though I deviated away from practice, if that made any sense, if that makes any sense. And you now you pray, right? And do you meditate too? Because you're spiritual. Do you have a, an awareness meditation practice, or is that through your prayers? It is. You know, it, it comes through prayer, and it comes through. So I, you know, I do a lot of things that are, you know, I would say meditative in nature. So for me, for instance, I'm a big runner. I used to box, so running was, you know, always heavy into my regimen. So for me, running is a form of meditation. I try to run without music or listening to anything, and. You know, just, you know, running about gives you time to contemplate, think about, um, think about life, think about decisions you've made, think about what you want life to look like in the future. Um, so instead of sitting in place, I find that for me, you know, running has been an excellent sort of, uh, you know, outlets the best word, bad word, but sort of in, in inroads to think about, um, you know, life, deeper questions, what I want my, my life to look like. How did you bring this book together? What inspired, obviously you've written about this, you know a lot about it, you probably experienced it personally. How did the whole thing come together? How was it inspired? Yeah, so this was The, the New Crusades, the book on uh, global Islamophobia. In many respects, it, it wasn't a book I, I wanted to write, to be frank with you. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years back with, with California Press called American Islamophobia, which was an analysis on... Um, the ways in which the U.S. government, American society had, uh, you know, inflicted and, you know, constructed systems of anti-Muslim animus here stateside. And that book, uh, it, it was, you know, thankfully it was a widely successful book, toured it. It's been adopted by various courses. And in the process of sort of touring and discussing that book, what I realized is many of the themes addressed in the book um, were happening on a, on a global level. And then when, when my own profile was, you know, you know, increasing um, as sort of a public uh, commentator and a public scholar, 
I teach law, but in addition to teaching law, uh, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, kind of on the speaker circuit. Um, you know, I was going to places like France. I was going to places like England, India, um, Sweden, um, South America, and meeting Muslim populations in those countries who were sharing their experiences. And then, you know, I realized that there needed to be a, a global, broad-based treatment as well was happening to Muslims real time in the world today. And, you know, again, it, it, it was a difficult book to write in many levels, and we can talk about that if you'd like. Um, but, but I wanted to sort of memorialize all this testimony I was collecting from Muslims all over the world to sort of piece together a story as to what global Islamophobia looks like. And it's definitely a crusade and a movement. I like that you use the word crusade. And a lot of people have no idea about the historical crusades, what uh, the European people did to the Muslims with these horrible, you know, genocidal invasions and conflicts for centuries. People don't even know about it. And there is a modern sort of witch hunt. I hate to use that phrase, but... And I've, I felt like it was going on before 9-11, but then... After 9-11, it like, was like gasoline on a racist fire. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that um, in, in, in the New Crusades, the title itself is sort of a, a multidimensional play on the original Crusades, tying it back to the original face-offs between um, you know, Muslim factions and then European Christian factions, uh, the Inquisition. You know, rooting it in, in that history to sort of construct a story that there is this sort of longstanding tension and in some res some respects standoff between Europe and Muslim populations, uh, like you've mentioned, uh, well before 9-11, right? And then obviously, you know, in, in the modern context, um, you know, leading up to 9-11, you know, Muslims were always sort of profiled in the American and European imagination, as, as pariahs, you know, suspicious communities that can't be fully assimilated. And I've conducted, uh, you know, I, I've, I've discussed this in much, some of my academic research, but then obviously 9-11 is a game changer. And the reason I choose the title, The New Crusades, is, you know, the war on terror, the global war on terror when it was announced, um, was sort of framed by then President George Bush as a global crusade. He uses the, the word crusade very explicitly in the speech he gives before Congress 10 days before nine, 10 days after 9-11. And I think he does so very strategically, is that he's trying to sort of, again, tap in to this very embedded imagination, uh, global sort of, you know, underbelly of imagination that, you know, Islam is this longstanding rival to civilization. Um, so this global war on terror becomes the, becomes the new crusade um, spearheaded by the United States, then then subsequently triggers, uh, you know, uh, an additional sort of subset of additional crusades that governments across the world, whether it be, you know, India with their persecution of Muslim communities, whether it be China with the ongoing genocide of Uyghur Muslims in that country, whether it be France with their crackdown on uh, expressions of religious uh, liberty uh, on the part of Muslims. These are additional crusades that are, in many respects, catalyzed by the American global war on terror. And there was a lot of religious good versus evil language around it. It seems like we always do need a villain. In this country, usually the darker the skin, the more the villain. Yeah, you know, the United States, um, and I'm, I'm going to say something that might scare some of your listeners, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
I'm a critical race theorist, right? So it obviously critical race theory itself has been under attack here in the United States uh, for uh, the last couple of years for political reasons. The the tradition has been, you know, demonized as being anti-American and anti-white. I came into uh, legal teaching, studying under the more prominent critical race theorists. And the way I think about it, I like the way you discuss you bring in uh, race into the conversation, you know, the blacker the skin, typically the more um, demonized the group is. So for me, I started thinking about Muslim identity being racialized within the broader frame and context of American racialization. So ironically, early enough in the American experience, um, Islam and Muslim identity was more it was thought about more so on terms of racial lines than it was religious lines. But I'll give you an example of what that means, right? So the first population of Muslims here in the United States were actually enslaved Africans who were brought uh, to work the fields, right? 30% of the slave population were Muslims. These were the first Muslims in the States. However, they were never seen as legitimate Muslims on account of their blackness. But then in the early 1900s, you get large waves of Arab immigrants coming from places like Lebanon, Syria, um, you know, uh, present day, you know, Israel and Palestine. The vast majority of these immigrants were, in fact, Christian, but they were Arab. So on account of their Arab identity, they were viewed as Muslims because Arab and Muslim were viewed to be synonymous in the American imagination then. Right. So there's always been a deeply racial dimension as to how Islam has been viewed, constructed and then treated by the United States, but also in Europe. Um, it's different in Europe. and We could talk about difference. Um, but, yeah, there's this you know, racialized fear of Islam that sort of percolates and drives Islamophobia on a domestic and global level. Well, we're critical race theory people, too. We've had Hannah Nicole Jones on the show who wrote six put together the 1619 Project. And to me, it's so obvious. And they're trying to make it into a boogeyman. The funniest thing is the people that are most afraid of it can't even tell you what it is. Ignorance. A lot of this is ignorance. Isn't racism, ignorance, fear, and ignorance mixed together? I think a lot of it is exploitation of ignorance, to be frank with you, right? I think ignorance is a starting point. Uh, you know, lack, lack of knowledge. I think what might be distinct in some respects with uh, Islamophobia is that uh, you know, ignorance sort of presumes that there's a void of knowledge. There isn't a void of void of knowledge when it comes to most Americans. When it comes to Islam, the the irony is that there's a there's a wealth of um, anti knowledge or, or or miseducation when it comes to Muslim identity as a consequence of the media most people consume, whether it be on outlets like you know Fox News, even liberal and centrist media perpetuates many of these problematic stereotypes. Um, the, the films that we watch, right? I think there was a study done a couple of years ago by a USC professor that 90% of the Muslims that appeared in Hollywood film up until 20, 000, uh, up until 2010 were in some respects tied to terrorism. Yeah, so the, the, the knowledge that people are being fed about Muslim identity um, is, is always associated with these really debilitating and destructive tropes. And yet, really, Christian, white Christian nationalism, white supremacy, Christian extremism is really the greatest terrorist threat we have, even according to the FBI. Yeah, and those statistics, and I, you know, I know, I know these stats because my academic research is on national security, um, has been known, right? It's been known by federal and local law enforcement that the greatest threat um, when it comes to mass violence, and part of it is how you define terrorism, right? So this, is, this has been the issue. 
is that um, you know uh, brass within government ha- they they haven't want they haven't defined white supremacist uh, factions as terrorism um, for a long time, which is sort of stifled how we go about you know enforcing and prosecuting terrorism. But you're exactly right. I think that uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center they've conducted really exceptional studies as to how the greatest statistical threats when it comes to security here in the States have been from these disparate white supremacist anarchist uh, groups, um, new, but also old. What do you think would have happened if 10,000 Arab Americans had moved on the Capitol on January 6th? Would the response have been the same? No, not at all. I mean, sad to you know, I I hate saying it and I don't want to say it, but I think you know, I was speaking to my friend about this very issue, I think, a year ago. He's uh, an executive director of one of the uh, largest Arab civil rights groups in the country in D.C. And we, we both agreed that there would have been um, a large number of people shot down and killed. I think even before they got to the grounds of the Capitol, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think there would have been a bloodbath long before they got anywhere near the place. Yeah, there would have been a bloodbath. A large number of people would have been rounded up and arrested. Even the surveillance would have, would have intercepted uh, some people before they even got to the campus uh, of, uh, of of the Capitol Hill area. I know because and the whole this whole coup was planned in plain sight, and I think with a lot of uh, government complacency and even involvement and compliance, and uh, we know that with the Secret Service and other agencies too. I think it was an in-house coup. And only the people that seem to be on the edges, the people who drove in, it's kind of cannon fodder are the ones being prosecuted. But if my point, that's the white supremacy built in everything. If you plug like um, a person of color into anything that's going on and these people get away with, it's a completely different set of justice and everything. And even painting Obama as a Muslim as if that was somehow would have been bad. He's not. But even if he was, so what? He was a good person. No, you know, exactly. And I think that when you when you talk about white supremacy, even if you don't sort of, you know, buy into this, buy into the theory that this was an in-house sort of coup, I think what to me was most salient was the fact that this is, you know, highlighted, you know, one of the greatest privileges of whiteness, in my opinion, is that it sort of like, you know, bestows you with a visibility, you know, an invisibility that. Regardless of how menacing and threatening you are, regardless of how, you know, imminent the threat is of you, you know, marching on and, you know, storming Capitol Hill, that that whiteness is a currency that sort of retrenches the notion that you are you you are at all going to be violent and threatening in the same way that blackness does. Right. In the same way that Muslim identity does. Um, And I think that the January 6th events uh, demonstrated that, that really fully. And, yeah, I think that with the Obama saga. You know, his middle name name being Hussein and him being, you know, half African. That was definitely exploited by the Tea Party and then uh, the Trumpists afterwards to demonize him. Right. Because we live in a day, at least we lived in a day then maybe we've shifted onto a new day where you, you're restricted from engaging in explicit expressions of anti-black racism, specifically saying, uh, you know, particular slurs against black people. So in my opinion, calling him a Muslim was a proxy for calling him an N-word in some respects. Did the election of Trump make it worse? And how is that for you personally? I mean, I'm a white guy and I felt like the election of Trump was a dark thing 
where I started the process of thinking I might want to live abroad. Yeah, you know, it was it was surreal on many levels. Um, I'm not one of these guys who like closely, closely, closely follows elections, you know, but I can tell you, you know, I'm being an academic um, and a big sports head. Uh, I spent most of my time researching, reading, teaching. And then when I'm not doing that, like watching boxing or soccer or American football or something. But dur- but during those elections, what I what I found myself doing for in many respects, the first time like I was glued to the TV uh, during the debates, especially the Republican um, nominee debates before the uh, the general election. And I always got this. I, I got the sense that Trump was sort of this very seductive sideshow for much of the American public who was just good TV, right? In the same way that his television shows. But I, I, w- I was always sort of like, and maybe uh, unfortunately consoled by this feeling that he wouldn't win. Even though he was making strides, right? Um, so when he started, like, when he started, when he won the nomination, I still kind of sensed that Clinton was going to win. But when he finally won, it was sort of like this wake up moment that, Maybe you don't know this country as well as you thought you knew it, right? And maybe that, you know, racism and Islamophobia and the xenophobia that he was spewing leading up um, to winning the presidency uh, was far more uh, pervasive and far, you know, and far more nefarious than you thought it was. So on that level, it was very frightening because, um, you know, part of you, and I, I would like to think of myself, and I think this is also tied to spirituality as being, you know, kind of an optimistic person. Like, I try to see the good in people as best I can. Um, but Trump winning really smacked against that feeling and, and really demonstrated to, to me that this racist, the racism disease um, within the country is, is far more grave than I thought it was. And it was scary for me, but to be honest with you, it was a lot more frightening for uh, many of the young Muslims that I knew. Like, I remember I was at this watch party for the election, and then people were gutted when Trump was in that, when it was announced that Trump won. I think it was some, it might have been like a 10.30 p.m. or 11 p.m., if I remember correctly. And I had two or three young Muslim women who wear the hijab um, from the ages of 14 to 18. The looks on their face were absolute fright, right? These were, these were young Young women who, you know, they, they couldn't remember the 9-11 moment the same way that I could. Um, so this was, in many respects, their sort of flashpoint moment. And many of them shared with me, and I've written about this, uh, that they wanted to take off their headscarf. Uh, young, I'd noticed in the coming weeks and months, you know, young men that I knew in the community were, you know, anglicizing their names, um, shaving their beards, um, looking to look less conspicuously. Muslim, on account of, you know, the rising hate crimes and the hate incidents that were taking place, um, you know, as, as a consequence of Trump saying the things that he said. So I, I was afraid, but, I, you know, I was more afraid for the younger generation who, um, you know, wasn't equipped to deal with, with what was happening in the same way that I was as a consequence of me being, you know, part of the the, the post 9-11 generation. And then he went ahead and just banning Muslim countries to me, it was just like the classic old white racist. And I felt like he ran on a platform of white supremacy and vote for white, the old ways, the racist ways. For me, what was hard too, and illuminating in a dark way, ironically talk about a mixed metaphor, 
was the people that I thought I knew who were like, love this guy and suddenly were really racist. And I had no idea, you know, it's like it brought it out. If anything, it people took the, you know, the, the sheets off and you, you got to see who, who was really under those hoods. And that was tough. I had to let some people go over this, you know, because I felt like, uh, you know, even if the Nazis are nice to me, I can't be friends with Nazis because of the way they are. Yeah. You know, like your social, social media was definitely very interesting after he won because, um, I, I don't want to use your metaphor, but for, for, for sake of brevity, you, you saw a lot of people that you thought that, you know, you know, kind of come from under the sheets, you know, in, in, you know, and say things and, you know, align with various viewpoints that you didn't associate them with. And they weren't always white on my end, to be honest with you. Right. I saw a lot of minor, minorities take to Trump uh, for economic reasons. You know, obviously there's the, the issue of uh, with some with some minorities to want to overcompensate and shed their minority identity for this, um, you know, mythic aspiration of, uh, of assimilating. Um, yeah, but I had friends who were supportive of the Muslim ban and say things like, look, you know, I know that there are good Muslims, but there's also problematic ones. And we have we have to have a ban like this to make sure that terrorists aren't coming into the country. I come from like a working class community. So I know a lot of people who didn't go on to college and uh, graduate school. And, you know, they hold, you know, views um, that aren't the most nuanced in some respects. And, you know, it, it, for me, that was the hardest part because I knew these people taking on really problematic positions. Um, and in, in many respects, they're, they're good people. Right. So for me, in, in some, in some ways, it was like this existential struggle for how to like judge people who take on bad positions. But I know on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, they're working hard to feed their children. Um, they really care about you and your family, but they have these really problematic views of your faith and the part of the world that you originate from. So yeah, the Trump moment, you know, really sort of thrust in a lot of complicated, uh, new conversations and challenges that were unprecedented before. I'll be honest with you. I think that many years later, in some respects, I'm grateful for the Trump moment because what it did, I think, for the United States um, and in some respects, the world at large, is that it sort of crystallized Islamophobia as a primary social and racial justice issue that we need to reckon with seriously. And I, I don't think that was the case before Trump. It, it was sort of a secondary issue, was pushed to the sideline. And not taken as seriously. But what Trump did uh, by virtue of his policies, the Muslim ban being the centerpiece, and then his rhetoric even more explicitly was to, was to demonstrate that, hey, the anti-Muslim animus and Islamophobia in this country is something we need to make uh, a primary issue of concern moving forward. Good point, because it was so cartoonish and ham-fisted. It wasn't very sophisticated or subtle. It was horrible. It was just like, but there was no denying it either. Yeah, I, and I think even though it was so cartoonish and sort of sloppy in the way he expressed it, it demonstrated that you don't need nuance and intellect to pass really problematic policy, right? Because even though his, his rhetoric was all over the place, he still was successful in enacting uh, the, executive, the executive decision, the Muslim ban that um, you know had a destructive impact on millions of people. And people that I knew in this community, Metro Detroit is a huge Arab and Muslim American population. And I knew friends, family members who were coming to me as, you know, they know me as an attorney. They don't even know me as a law professor or author asking me questions. How can I get my loved one? My mother is stuck in Yemen. Um, my fiance is in Somalia. 
Uh, I went on to speak at, um, I think it was something like 20 or 25 mosques in the months afterwards, just, you know, conducting um, breakdowns and know your rights around uh, the Muslim man and what families can and can do. Um, so it was a, it was a time of, you know, great confusion and, and on my end, just doing the best I could do to serve the community. You sound a lot like my Asian American friends too. And we've had several on the show activists and whatnot who the hate crimes went through the roof, especially with the China virus and other hate. It, it like gave per- people the permission to be their worst selves out in the open and violent. It's been, it's been tough. Do you feel safe just moving through the world in America? Really? I should say, do you feel safe in America as you? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, that's a difficult question. Um, do I feel safe? I, I in large part feel physically safe. If that makes any sense. Um, I, 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 I think that declines when I'm giving a speech on campus um, or if I'm speaking at a, in, at a context or at an institution that is unfamiliar to me. You know, I get invited to churches, for instance, and I lived in Arkansas for, for a while in the Deep South. There have been situations where I haven't felt entirely safe, but I think by and large, I feel safe because if you met me in person, uh, you know, if we sat across from each other, I come off as being very racially ambiguous, right? You, you're not going to identify me as an Arab or as a Muslim unless you, you know, look at my ID and know a bit more about my profile. When I, when I was in California or Florida, people thought that I was r- routinely uh, Latino. And, uh, you know, in that kind of like racial ambiguity that many Muslim men have is not something that women have. So there's a gender dimension to Islamophobia that I think makes it far more dangerous for women, especially women who wear the headscarf, right? Because they're wearing a perpetual target on their heads that makes them identifiable and vulnerable to Islamophobes. Uh, in ways that isn't the case for men. Um, so if you were to ask that question to, you know, my mother, my sister, or my niece, or my partner, they tell you something radically different. So much misogyny in the world, especially here and everywhere, really. Is there a remedy for any of this? Uh, is I think talking about it and having a platform and writing about it helps. I hate the word optimism and hope and all that kind of stuff. I, are we going to trend towards the right direction? The only, uh, the only thing I can hang a hat on, if I had a hat, is that it seems like younger people, the younger generations, are less racist, less concerned with gender, more fluid. You know, they're they're not buying into all the old stereotypes. And maybe the old racist dinosaurs will just die out, you know, like the Neanderthals did. Yeah, you know, I, I don't see racism, to be honest with you, sort of like, it's, it's not on this progressively upward arc. Um, and I think most critical race theorists will, will tell you that race, race and racism is something that is always fluidly adapting to prevailing political economic um, currents. And that's not the case for the United States. I think, you know, again, the, the, the Trump moments signify that um, it only takes like, you know, one demagogue to be able to sort of undo all the racial progress that was that was done in the last several decades. Um, Tying that conversation to optimism and hope, um, I think for me, and I don't want to take the conversation necessarily in this direction, but just, you know, very briefly, being a spiritual person, to be honest with you, I, I don't seek perfection or full-fledged resolution here um, in the world, right? Because I believe in something bigger and greater than we have here in the world. But I, but I, but I, I am hopeful 
um, on many fronts. I think that um, what I've noticed in my my 40 years living in the United States, the majority of it is people are a lot more, um, you know, wide eyed and open to having conversations about race and racial difference in ways that wasn't the case um, 10 and definitely not 20 years ago. And that makes me makes me very very hopeful, right? Especially amongst populations and uh, the the white the white communities, right? The disparate white communities and whiteness isn't monolithic by any means. But when I see racism and questions around race um, and religion, religious difference being championed by institutions in the broader white community, that makes me very hopeful because it seems to me that um, you know elements which in some respects have benefited from this broader architecture of white supremacy are invested and interested um, in changing it. When I see the fact that law schools um, across the country are looking for scholars like myself to teach, to teach critical race theory and race and law. And for me as an uh, you know, Arab Muslim law professor teaching constitutional law to um, you know, future lawyers, judges, individuals who might become politicians, um, their knowledge of the law is going to be, you know, colored by the way a man of color teaches that foundational law class. That makes me very hopeful, right? And I think that it's it's important, at least for me, and you know, um, critical race theorists and advocates and activists that you speak to might say different things, um, and that I speak to say radically different things, and they kind of view me as an anomaly. Um, but I do feel as if it's, you know, my responsibility to educate people about Islamophobia, because if I don't educate people about this issue, folks aren't going to learn about it. They're going to go to Fox News or CNN to read about it. Um, and the fact that people are willing to have these conversations and are open to having honest and difficult discussions about these issues makes me very hopeful. Um, and if I didn't have that hope, I wouldn't want to do this work, to be honest with you, because um, there are things in life that we can do that bring you far much joy, like, you know, watching soccer or, uh, <laughs> you know, eating exactly and hanging out with loved ones. And I'm spiritual. I see it all as a spiritual, not, I hate to say game, but a process. Like I'm not my body. This is my avatar. And I mean, I still, it's an extension of what I really am, not who. And then I'm in this three dimensional world full of polarity and contrast with free choice. And I'm just here to make choices and have experiences. And my thing is, can I create karma for kindness and compassion? Can I be loving and patient as imperfect as I am all the time and just try to make better choices and the smile at people and have this show as a sort of an act of service and have the difficult conversations and the joyous ones, enjoy the tiramisu, enjoy the soccer match cry when I miss somebody. And this is my spiritual, part of my spiritual beingness is just to be here while living in the world. You know, I go to vote, I pay my taxes, I stop at the red light, but I don't see it as the be all end all. It's not, and I'm not trying to bypass the hard things actually. Life's very painful and it's joyous, but it's just, I see this as just a nanosecond in my spiritual eternity. Yeah, I think that's, that's a beautiful way to, to articulate exactly the way that that i feel right so i feel that yeah you know you, your podcast is sort of a a channel in which you express your spirituality and in some respects i feel that my my work you know um the books that i write and the, the, you know the, the talks that i give 
are in some respects, they're, they're not purely spiritual, but they're sort of driven by this objective to try to better society and humanity in the little way that I, that I can do it. I can tell you this, like, I, I think that I was talking, I was talking to a friend the other day and he's super, super progressive, far leftist, um, you know, a uh, lawyer activist guy. And he always tells me, Hey, do you notice how many people in this political camp are just not always the nicest people, right? They're people who are very egotistical, um, you know, will, will cancel you if you say the wrong thing. Um, they're always in competition with you over, you know, uh, opportunities and so on and so forth. And I've noticed that in my own career, which highlights the idea that even though you might have great, you know, ideological or political affinity with an individual, um, that isn't always the most important thing. I think for me, um, in the course of writing these books and, you know, touring these books, I've had really beautiful experiences meeting with people who are conservatives and people who, before I met them, were ardent Islamophobes. And in some respects, these people have become friends. I met, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. So I gave a talk at an evangelical church in Kentucky many years ago. I didn't want to do it, but a colleague of mine said, hey, you should do this. This is a community that I really benefit from your book. And I met this, um, basically a grandma. She was an older white woman who um, was staring at me with like this really angry face in like the second row of the church when, uh, when I was speaking. She comes up to me afterwards and we get into a little, not a hostile exchange, but a tense exchange. She asked for my email. Uh, she emails, uh, she asked me to send her the book. I send her the book and she's become like a close friend. I email with her at least once a week now. When I got to Kentucky, I stop by there. She makes me cake and, you know, lunch. And we just have these really beautiful conversations about politics and religion and American society. And she's still a political conservative, right? Um, but that to me just testifies to the fact that we don't always have to think alike politically or ideologically to be good to one another. Sometimes people that, you know, bring joy and bring um, new perspectives to your life are people who might be on the, the opposite side of the political spectrum. And I feel like that's the core of any spiritual doctrine, whether it's from Muhammad or Jesus or the Buddha right there. I have friends like that too. I have to love them. And here's where I got to get my ego out of the way. And I hear this, it almost makes me want to cry when I say it. If I had their life, I would probably almost definitely think the way they do. I'm not inherently better than anybody. Now that said, I can maybe just through my questions, kindness, information, shed a little light, but I'm not there to change them as a primary goal. I'm there to be present, try to find the divinity in them, and then share things. And I've been successful that way. You know, and then there's other people that need to be locked up. You know, not everything is redeemable, like a rabid dog or certain people. But that's my goal, is to not let my ego feel that I'm somehow better or or quick quickly condemn that there's got to be some humanity in there. And if not, what happened to them? No, exactly. And that's beautifully put. And I think that when, when you articulated that, it reminded me about, you know, these conversations on privilege, right? And we certainly whiteness is one of the, the primary privileges, but there are a whole array of privileges that we have beyond the racial context, right? So, you know, being educated and having college degrees is a form of privilege, for instance, right? And not using that as leverage to look down upon people, working class people who haven't had the chance to go on to college as a consequence of their 
financial circumstance or, you know, gender privilege or the fact that we look, I, I just came back from overseas and I met taxi drivers from Bangladesh and hotel workers from the Philippines. And even though I'm very critical of, you know, American policy and American government, those people would be happy to change places with me in, in a second. Right. So, yeah, like, you know, just just being conscious of for me, at least, right, being conscious in the way you you put it was really eloquent. Being conscious of the privilege that we have um, enables you in a spiritual sense to build bridges with people that if you didn't have that spirituality, you'd be willing to cut off or cancel really quickly. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.